0: I've got it to work on my phone.
1: This is this is why we're librarians <laughs> because we are infinitely flexible. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast that connects academic ideas to popular culture, assigns you homework, and hopefully makes it fun again. Uh, My name is Martha Sullivan. I am one of your fully armed and operational co-hosts, and I am here, as always, with my other co-host.
2: I'm Pete Romberg, and uh, it's hard to beat fully armed and operational uh
1: yeah i just pulled that right off the top of my head too i'm awesome today
2: yeah so i'm just gonna sort of not even not even try to rise to that one i'm i'm here too
1: uh and today pete and i are joined by my fabulous co-host and co-librarian lauren maxwell thank you so much for joining us today lauren
0: thank you for having me i'm excited
1: uh We are going to be talking today about fairy tales and their impact and influence on our popular culture. Uh, But first, we do have to start with the displaying of our pop culture credentials. Uh, This is the last piece of media that we consumed or experienced prior to recording this podcast. And today I find myself torn between what I know to be the honest answer and what I actually want to talk about as the interesting answer (laughs) uh the honest answer is i watched my husband play like an hour of sea of thieves last night uh which is a game that's coming out for pc and xbox next month i think and has been an open beta for what feels like two years where you basically get to be a pirate um and other people it's a it's an online multiplayer game so there are other players Sailing around and destroying your boat for no reason while you're on islands hunting for treasure. And sometimes you shoot skeletons.
2: Pirate themed games seem like they're tailor made for the MMO world. And so it's shocking that not only can I, like, does that not exist yet, but other than, like, the 90s uh, Monkey Island games, I can't think of any, like, pirate video games at all.
0: Oh, no, Assassin's what? Creed had a pirate one, oh, and it was awful.
2: Good point on both
1: <laughs> fronts.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, it's the only one I played a little bit of.
0: <laughs> the ship mechanics were terrible because it's originally, you know, you're running around cities and having fun, and then all of a sudden they were like, let's do water, and it didn't work out.
2: <laughs> you know how this game I is about s- jumping and running a lot? What if we put you on a boat?
0: Yeah, but then you lose all the fun. You can't jump around. You can't climb anything. You're just like literally on the ocean. And then they're like, we're going to teach you a whole new way to play the game. And that's not what you signed up for.
1: Isn't it like not even... Is it, isn't it? it like an adjacent story? Like it's not even really connected to the main narrative? Or am I making that up?
0: They had a moment in the middle there where they couldn't quite decide what they were up to. So, yeah. It's not super tuned in to the main story of what it is that you're trying to figure out and accomplish, but I just pretend that one doesn't exist.
1: That's fair. But yeah, Sea of Thieves looks super beautiful and may actually drive me to uh, finally get a new computer because you can, the the full version will have cross-platform multiplayer. Mm. so if bill is playing on the xbox and i am playing on my pc we can be on the same pirate crew which is appealing to me because so few games have couch multiplayer which drives me nuts um But yeah, so that's the boring and accurate answer. The more interesting and answer that I actually want to talk about is that last night I saw three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, but Pete and I have just decided that next episode, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but next episode we'll be talking about the Oscars, so I'm going to save that for our full-length Academy Awards discussion. Pete,
0: <laughs> why don't you tell us about your
2: pop culture credential? Cool. So, uh, obviously, we all saw Black Panther last weekend, and it was delightful. So, the next movie that I'm gearing up to be excited about is A Wrinkle in Time, which is coming out, Yes. I think it's next weekend. Um, yes. Uh, I know. I- I- honestly, Annihilation is out this weekend. I want to see that, but, like, A Wrinkle in Time is the big one. Uh, so, because of that, I'm rereading the book. Um... I I read a little bit this morning, read a bunch yesterday. It's still delightful. I'm shocked at how quickly it gets you right into the action. Um, I don't remember, like, how—that part I didn't remember. Um, But it's really good, and I'm super excited for the movie.
1: Uh, So yesterday, I found out that my parents have never read it.
0: What? Interesting. That's not allowed.
1: Which is unfathomable to me, because I read it about 12 times. (laughs) when i was a small child and i'm like how how did i read this so ma-? and well it, it's it, it might because have been because they, you were
2: old enough that they weren't like they didn't have plus. to read
1: it to me yeah yeah but it was just like cuz the um at the theater we were at for our uh AMC Oscar movie marathon they had a really big like cardboard display for the movie and i had like a meltdown because i'm so excited about it and my parents were like huh yeah what is that and i said wait what i don't (laughs) understand well and honestly that
2: (laughs) that book came out like in i think it was like 59 or something it was published so it was around when they were kids
1: uh then they really have no excuse i'm gonna make them read it before we go see the movie because it'll take them like an hour yeah
0: yeah, that's one of the books that I actually still own. Working in the library, I don't own books all that often anymore. But that one, the entire—is it a quintet? I own the whole thing.
1: Yeah, it was *A Wrinkle in Time*, um, *A Wind in the Door*,
2: *Swiftly Tilting Planet* was Swiftly one of them. *Swiftly
0: Tilting Planet*, An *Many Waters*. Time. Yeah. yeah, I have them all on my shelf behind me.
2: Uh, <laughs> nice. You could just turn around and read them. God, <laughs> read the I read
1: those. I read those until I just destroyed them.
2: It, it was also for me the first book um, that I, I I distinctly remember reading it in fifth grade, like for class. But I had already read it before that, um, and that was the first time that that had happened.
1: I wanted. To, so we had it as a group reading assignment. But it was like if you had already read the book that you were supposed to read, you got to read A Wrinkle in Time. Mm-hmm. So fifth grade me lied and said that I had already read The Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil e. Frankenweiler because I did not care about that book and I wanted to read A Wrinkle in Time super, super bad.
0: <laughs> I can respect that.
1: Lauren, what is your uh, last piece of media consumed?
0: I'm a little ashamed to admit I'm super not up with the times with pop culture. So, this is I, a note,
1: this is a judgment-free zone. There is no shame here.
0: Well, I last night just finished watching The Tudors. Mm. <gasps> like the whole the whole like, thing. I finished oh. the last episode last night. And I have to say, (laughs) I was, I felt like obligated to finish it out because it had some really good moments in the middle. And I was like, it's the last episode, they're gonna pull out all the stops, which they did. The last episode was good. But Mm -hmm. it was also something that I could have on in the background while I was cooking Mm. Or, you know, like, doing something else on my tablet. It it didn't really hold me a whole lot. It,
2: to be fair, I'm always looking for those good, like, cooking and cleaning shows. Uh, so that, like, that that's a good category to put it in without it necessarily being a knock against it.
1: See, I think... I think that is kind of a knock against. So I watched the first two seasons of The Tudors and loved them, and then kind of fell off at season three because I think part of what I loved so much about it was Natalie Dormer.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: True story. once, uh, yeah. So once, spoiler alert, she dies. Oh um, no! Is what? she
2: a, is she a wife of a Henry? Does something <laughs> bad happen to her?
1: No. She's Anne yeah, she <laughs> plays Anne Boleyn. <laughs> um, but but i i think that like a a period drama should be really rich and visually complex like you shouldn't be able to just put it on in the background so i i don't know i'm sad that it fell off in quality so hard cuz i think the first two seasons are pretty excellent i i tried then, to start yeah, watching it, just, it
2: like two or three times and never got past like the third or fourth episode Probably because I wasn't like binging it enough for it to get like its tentacles locked at me.
0: Possibly, I just kept waiting for Superman to have his big moment, and it never happened. So <laughs> that was upsetting. oh Henry Henry,
1: Henry Cavill.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs>
1: yeah, it was super. I did experience a very strong uh, like visual disconnect moment when I found out he was going to be Superman because it was like wait wait, but he's really British. <laughs> Like, really British.
2: <laughs> As a quick aside, I just watched Justice League for the first time on Friday. Uh, Hate watched it with my brother. And that's a different episode. But oh boy.
1: Is it better than Batman versus Superman?
2: <sighs> we'll have that conversation really? off air. That feels
0: like a low bar. It's,
2: like, it's an obje- it is. It, it's an. Objectively- <laughs> it's an incredibly low bar. It's an objectively better movie, <laughs> but the parts of Batman vs Superman that are bad are at least interestingly bad. Whereas this was just like, I'm sorry, banally. Were bad. there
1: parts? Were there parts of Batman vs Superman that weren't bad? But they were all
2: interestingly bad instead of like banally, blandly bad.
1: I disagree very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right. I mean, like, I, I am not You're a defender it, of BVS. This is probably
1: but... a separate episode. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, as I said before, today we are going to be talking about fairy tales. Uh, We have a couple of discussion points queued up, including just a general uh, definition of what a fairy tale is um, and whether, you know, how we feel that definition has uh, influenced or, you know, directly um, gone into creating the homework media that we experienced for this episode. Also, why do we think that fairy tales and fables have gotten to be so ingrained in our pop culture? Uh, why have we held on to the same stories for so long? Uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, the idea of fairy tales being originally conceived as warning stories or morality tales, and do we think that modern tales or modern fairy tales continue to function in this way? And the last question that I kind of threw on here, and I may not have worded it very well, so, um, you know, if this doesn't sound like English uh, to you guys, please let me know. But at what point do the central characters of fairy tales, uh, Snow White, for example, become ciphers or archetypes? Are all the different reimaginings of Snow White still Snow White, or do they become their own characters? Um... We are going to start today, I think, with Lauren's homework, uh, because she assigned us the most straightforward and traditional fairy tale. So I think that that'll be a good uh, starting point for our discussion. So Lauren, do you want to quick introduce the book that you had us read for our episode today?
0: Um, I chose The Sleeper and the Spindle by Neil Gaiman, um, which is a book with illustrations, but not a traditional graphic novel. Um, It's kind of a mashup of several different fairy tales threaded together. Um, It's got a little bit of Snow White, a little bit of Sleeping Beauty, a little bit of a couple other things as well. Um, But basically we've got our queen, who never has a name, um goes over the border into the neighboring kingdom because they've been infected by a sleeping sickness Um, and she is on her way to save the day she leaves the prince she's supposed to marry in the dust with a nice little chuck on the chin says don't worry sweetie it'll be fine Um, goes across the border and basically saves the day
1: I really loved that scene where she was like, I just kissed him until he felt better. <laughs> and then I
0: left. <laughs> that might've been one of my favorite lines in the entire thing. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, this, uh, as I said,
1: this is the most, I think traditional of the fairy tales that we kind of looked at for this week. But even this one is a, a pastiche of sorts of a couple of different stories. As you said, Lauren, um, I had never read this before. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed kind of the unexpected way that things get remixed at the end of the
0: story.
2: Yes. I, I also had Um, never, I never even heard of it. Um, really? Yeah. And like, I, I, Loved Neil Gaiman, so I was shocked when, uh, Lauren, you assigned a Neil Gaiman thing, and I was like, I, what is that? Um, I loved the ending. I, I love how he plays with all the, the, the tropes of fairy tales and, you know, subverts them or inverts them.
1: Yeah, so um, we always assume that people listening to our episode have read or watched or done their homework. Uh, So we should not be afraid of spoilers uh, for our discussion.
0: I apologize. In library world, you have to be very careful of spoilers.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, in in the education (laughs) world, you
0: better
2: have done your homework. So barrel right (laughs) on through.
1: But yeah, so we can go ahead and say that at the end, you find out that the Sleeping Queen is the one who actually uh, put the spell on the town um, in a really neat little twist of the expectation, because it looks a lot like we are in Sleeping Beauty, and that instead of uh, that the inversion is that instead of the prince going to save uh, save the princess and wake the kingdom, uh, it's the queen who I think it is also safe to say is our Snow White character. Um, yeah, he just, loves
2: using loves using like Snow White words to describe her.
1: It's just, this is after Snow White's story. Um, but yeah, you find out that the, the Sleeping Queen is actually the evil witch. Um, and that the whole thing has been a spell for her to get her beauty and her wisdom back. Um, which I thought, I did not see did not predict uh before it was actually happening so i thought that that was a really interesting way to subvert our kind of we know how this goes because we've been telling this story for years and even i was about to be totally satisfied with the idea of oh Snow White gets to break the curse rather than a, you know, generic white guy prince. Like, that was going to be enough for me. And then, but wait, there's more.
2: <laughs> yeah. It also plays with, like, a couple of things that Gaiman has used in other places, which I love. Um, the idea that, you know, the, the witch is in a sleeping spell because she's using it to regain her beauty and power. um And he, like, it reminded me a lot of um, Stardust with the idea that, like, as the magic person uses more magic, they become older and less, you know, powerful. Um, And then this is sort of the opposite of it. Um, The other thing that I absolutely loved about this was the art, uh, which we haven't really talked about other than mentioning it exists. It reminds me a lot of uh, a a children's book I had, East of the Sun, West of the Moon. which is like a traditional Norwegian fairy tale with just gorgeous illustration. Um, I'm a little sad that I read this digitally because apparently the physical copy is like metallic inks in the art, which would just be like beautiful, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I did read the physical copy um, and it looks a lot. It looks very much like an illuminated manuscript. Mm hmm. You have um, sort of inserts at places, like pull-out quotes. Um, Everything is very, like, finely, fine lines. Uh, Yeah, there's some gilded portions. It's all black and white with touches of gold. It's, yeah, really lovely.
0: I really liked it because it's so very traditional. Um, The story itself is really... um, taking all of these things that are very strong traditions that we've had for hundreds of years and turning it on its head. Um, but then when you look at the actual physical book, um, particularly the illustrations, it looks a lot like what you would expect out of you know medieval manuscripts, like you said. Um, so it takes these classic fairy tale um, tropes and turns them on their heads, but then it presents it in this very classic, beautiful package
2: what would you ballpark the appropriate age for this as being? Um, Because in many ways, it's sort of like, it it, it could easily be a children's book, but then there are parts of it where it's like, eh, that's not really, you know, it's it's got enough hiccups in it, which all fairy tales kind of do.
0: Well, I I can say at our library, we have it cataloged in both the middle school and um, high school collections. Um, And I think that's a pretty good, place to have it. I think any younger than middle school, you um, risk a lot of parents coming up to your desk at the library and saying, why would you do this <laughs> to my child? Um,
2: yeah, I, I, and... would, I could see, like, low end of fifth grade.
1: I would yeah. have said eight and up. Really?
2: Eight, yeah. Eight-year-old? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's, the, and this is why, I think it's the kind of story where, you get different things out of it depending on how old or mature that you are. Mm -hmm. So I think an eight year old, I think a good reader uh, could read this at eight and have it be kind of a cool adventure story. Cause like you have the dwarves and you have the like going to the castle and beating the evil witch. Um, But the older you are, the more you're going to get the I guess, com- more complexities of the story, but I don't know that it's beyond the skills or comprehensions of a slightly younger reader.
2: I guess I'm a-, a more precocious eight year old.
1: I mean, I think the, the biggest, I guess, or the most um, risque portion of it is the two women uh, is the, the, um, Snow White is the one that kisses Sleeping Beauty to wake her up, but even that's not really a... It's a pretty chaste kiss. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but they managed to avoid that whole thing entirely in Frozen, so, you know. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, the no, other I, thing I about... don't know that I disagree. Oh. Um, I just know that... Working in the community that I work in, there were there would be a lot of parents that would object to me handing this to an eight-year-old.
1: That's true, um, and that's a case of knowing, like knowing our community and knowing our readers. I think, and I wouldn't hand it to any eight-year-old. Like I said, I think that they would have to be a good reader because it is written very reminiscently of like a Grimm's fairy tale. Mm-hmm. It has a very traditional tone. Um, and writing style, so maybe ten and up to be safe
2: there's like i i I was so fascinated by the way it was written because it there was a lot of like sort of implication um where it's like he'll spend one sentence almost yada, yada, yada ing something um that you have to sort of have those tropes in your back pocket to be like, "Oh okay, here's what's going on here um Which which I liked a lot reading it.
1: Yeah, the other thing that I really liked about it um, is that it is... The um, kind of crux of the story hinges on what I think is a very common fairy tale storytelling device, which is the the power of... Which is that physical beauty frequently equals power. And often the way that that beauty is described will be your shorthand for, is this character good or bad? Because I think across different fairy tales, you have characters described as being incredibly beautiful, but then the way that they're described as being beautiful will be your shorthand for, oh, this is the evil queen or, oh, this is the princess. So particularly when we start to realize that the sleeping beauty in this story is not the um, like innocent figure of good that we have come to save, the ways in which she is described as being beautiful start to change. And I thought that was really both fascinating and very true to the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pete, tell us about the homework that you assigned for us. So I assigned
2: uh, a... Trade paperback uh, book of Hellboy by Mike Mignola, um The Corpse and the Iron Shoes. It's volume three of the initial run of Hellboy. Looks like it was published in 1996 um, as as a collection of stories that had been published previously. Uh, it's a bunch of short stories, so you can jump into it with your only knowledge of Hellboy being like the Del Toro movies, uh, and you'll be okay, I think. Um, True! Yeah, yeah, right, because that's sort of where we're all coming from, I think. Um, but it's Hellboy going on a couple adventures, uh, dealing with a lot of, especially um, Irish-sort-of-themed fairy tale beasties, um, saving a child from some changelings, uh, fighting the Baba Yaga, uh, fighting some werewolves. Um, they're all disconnected, and they're all a lot of fun. I assigned this specifically because of the Baba Yaga. Uh, I wanted to get some Russian... Fairy tale influence in here. Um, Baba Yaga has always been a really fascinating character for me. I, I I had read this years ago and forgot how little she's in it. Um, but I liked all the Irish fairy tales she was bringing in too, um, the Changeling and the Iron Boots and all that. So uh, this was sort of my attempt to be as as broad based, uh, non simply grim esque fairy tale uh, as possible.
1: So, I did have to this is the reason I looked up the definition of a fairy tale because I would not have called Baba Yaga a fairy tale figure. Hmm. I don't think, but according to um according to the standard dictionary of folklore mythology and legend, the definition of a fairy tale is as a s- basically a subsection of folklore um and since i would have called baba yaga a folktale creature she still counts maybe <laughs> um I, I don't know she she goes beyond being a witch i think just because of her prevalence in uh russian folklore uh, but i'm happy to be i'm happy for this to be sort of a pedantic argument that doesn't (laughs) actually matter. (laughs) She's kind of like if all the witches
2: and all the various Grimm's fairy tales were all the same witch, Um, and also like the bones of Germany or something. Is she German or Russian? No, she's Russian, but like translating it to Grimm, it'd be German.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, So yeah, I'm glad that you said that about how you could enjoy this with your only exposure to Hellboy being the Del Toro movies, because... That's me. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> well, I have even less. I have zero exposure before reading
2: this book. Uh, you you would love, I would hazard the Del Toro Hellboy movies.
0: I, I will definitely put it on my lengthy list of pop culture things <laughs> I need to get my Fair hands on. Um, but yeah, um, I, even without any um, understanding of what Hellboy is or does, um, the first story did a really good job of explaining to me who he is and what he does, um, just in a couple of lines. Um, so I felt like I had a good entry point in understanding what it is that I'm reading. Um, because this is Volume 3, so clearly there's lots of um, stories that precede this. Um, so I, I felt like I knew what was going on. I knew he was a supernatural creature battling creepy beasties.
1: I did have to, I did read the, um, the Chained Coffin story twice. Um, did you guys read the little introductions before each chapter that Mike Manola wrote?
0: hmm Of course. Okay.
1: Because <laughs> I thought they were, I thought they were really a great way to see where he was drawing influence from, um, and also because without that, I don't know that I would have picked up on the fact that the Chained Coffin story is supposed to be uh Hellboy's origin <laughs> story.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Um, but yeah, I thought it was a really comprehensive way. Cause I am familiar with the Hellboy character. I just haven't read a lot of the comic material. Um, so I, th- I thought that the, the kind of short story, short investigations um, was a really good way of showing us, like, this is who this character is. This is what he's all about. And then also kind of sneaking in, oh, this is where he comes from. Um, because in this book, you don't get a lot of his involvement with um, the World War Two stuff like the World War II scientists that find him and raise him, I think.
2: Yeah, Hellboy's, like, larger overriding mythos is hilarious because it's like he's fighting Nazis led by Rasputin who are trying to summon Cthulhu monsters to destroy the world, but he himself is the son of the devil who's going to destroy the world. It's delightfully nonsensical.
1: I was going to say, it's wonderful and doesn't matter for this book at all. Right. (laughs)
2: So, so one thing with this, uh, which I had forgotten until rereading it, there's a lot of fairy tale elements in it, but there's also a lot of sort of, like, church folklore in it. Um, like, the Wolves of St. Augustine is definitely, a, like, werewolves cursed by, you know, gods-slash-priests. Um, so that, that could be something we, we want to talk about, sort of the, the combination of those two elements, um, or something we want to sidestep.
1: I actually I would be into talking about it because one of the one of the ways that I think people frequently write this kind of supernatural story like um it comes up in supernatural for example um but stories where you have one kind of investigative character who is uh hunting down things that are dangerous and end up being a ver- end up being a pastiche of different kinds of folklore for whatever reason um I do think you get a pretty strong Christian influence, just because there's some scary stuff in, uh, like religious mythology, just like in fairy tale mythology. So I kind of like this idea that we're using not just like folk and fairy tale, or like we're not just using old um Germanic or European folk and fairy tale lore, but that these Christian stories have also become part of our folk tale landscape because they get used the same way in a lot of these uh supernaturally themed shows and media. Um and,
2: and I think too that a, like they're all coming from the same Genesis point, right? Where like um folk tales starting as like oral traditions told by more likely rural people in western europe at a time when religion was just a deep part of everyday life um you're gonna have as part of your fairy tale also the story about how like you know the priests can do something or like evil beasties don't like crosses um and then that that sort of there's a lot of intermingling, I I think, even when they were beginning, because culturally there was just a lot of intermingling um, to begin with.
1: Yeah, honestly, Catholicism is like one step away from witchcraft anyway.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Them fighting words. <laughs> well,
1: it is. I mean, if you, if you look at, um, and I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, I just mean like the focus on ritual. Um, The relationship that Catholics, particularly, I should say, Irish Catholics have to um, saints and their iconography. Like, it has a lot in common with um, older forms of ritual and worship. A lot of old saint
2: stories feel very much like fairy tales or folk tales. Um, Even thinking of just St. Patrick driving the snakes out or what have you. Um, that, That could easily be in a different culture or different context not a saint, but just a, a folk hero, Kuhuelan or whoever.
0: Well, I think that functions, be, well, it's because of their function. Their function is to um, teach morality. And I know that I'm jumping ahead a little bit more, um, but... No, please do. A, uh, a religious tale Clearly has a moral at the end. There's a point. There's a lesson you're supposed to learn. Um, and if you argue that fairy tales and folklore are doing the same thing, um, then it makes a lot of sense that they would be um similar in structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good and point. I guess,
1: my, I guess my point is just that I enjoy it when uh, stories that use a mix of folk and fairy tales to help tell their own stories also include uh stories that have a like christianity or religious tradition because they are the same kinds of stories so i enjoy seeing them get used and told the same way you like the
2: cross pollination
1: yeah like i don't think i i had a moment when i was reading this like oh there's a lot of like a lot of religious undertones and a lot of religious themes here. And how do I feel about that? And then I was like, well, but they're serving like, it didn't feel gross or abusive of the, the, um, stories or conventions. It just felt like they were being treated the same way as, um, the other supernatural, uh, flavors and things that were happening in the book. Mm hmm. How did uh, Lauren how did you feel about the the way that religion gets kind of mixed up in with the hellboy book?
0: Um, I admit it I am a super churchy girl. I was <laughs> very much raised in the church. Um but a very Protestant church. Um so a lot of this felt very unfamiliar to me. Um because it is very Catholic very old school religion. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's not necessarily Christian, but I would argue that it's pretty Catholic um, because there is a long tradition in Catholicism of, you know, thousands of years of um, religious tradition that you can you can work in that Protestantism just doesn't have that same long history. It's new, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the newfangled thing. Um So I, I, I felt okay about it because none of it was, um, I don't, none of it was irreverent, you know, like, none of it was disrespectful, I guess. It is irreverent, but not disrespectful.
2: Yeah, like Martha was saying, it's all presented very matter-of-factly, like, you know, this changeling is, is hurt by cold iron, and this beastie is hurt by a, a cross or whatever, um, so it's just sort of presented without judging,
0: yeah, I agree. so i I didn't get any like weird, like defensive religion vibes while I was reading it. Um, but it it did have a lot of religious themes that then I felt the need that I needed to go and educate myself further. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. There were a lot of things that I was like, I had no idea that that was a thing in Catholicism.
2: Did this lead um, to some wiki wormholes?
0: Definitely. Yes. It was a dangerous, dangerous thing.
2: That might be my favorite part of like all fairy tale stories is, is the ability to then go and lose yourself for hours researching more. That might speak more to me as a person <laughs> rather than anything else, but... <laughs>
0: Nope. Research is my jam. That's what I do all the time. I, uh, I had a library patron a few months back that wanted to find the original Beauty and the Beast. And as we all know, that's super subject to interpretation. Um, so it turned into a really fun research rabbit hole.
1: Uh, so I am going to, unless anybody has any final thoughts specifically about Hellboy... I'm going to move on to our film portion of the discussion. Uh, so the, what I assigned you guys was the 2006 Guillermo del Toro uh, film Pan's Labyrinth, which is a beautiful movie. If I'm showing my hand a little early. Uh, so this movie takes place in 1944 uh, post in post civil war, Spain. Uh, The main character is Ophelia, a 12-year-old girl whose mother has just married a uh, captain, I believe. Yes. Yes, a captain who is in the Spanish countryside hunting down uh, Republican rebels. So the movie opens with uh, Ophelia and her mother traveling to visit the captain. Her mother is incredibly pregnant. Uh, And over the course of the movie, you get two sort of parallel narratives. Uh, you have the real world story of Captain Vidal uh, and his one of his housekeepers, uh, Mercedes, whose brother, who is part of the rebellion and whose brother is as well. Uh, so as the captain is hunting down uh, the rebels and they are trying to um, counter his efforts. Uh, and then you have the parallel story of Ophelia meeting, the, meeting a faun uh, at night who tells her that she is the reincarnation of Princess Moana, whose father is the king of the underworld. And in order to get back to her home and reclaim her uh, immortality and magical life, she has to complete three tasks for him. Um, this stories sound pretty disparate but I think end up intertwining in very interesting ways. Uh, Del Toro is sort of the master of the metaphor. Uh, So he uses the, um, like, uses fascism, the fascism of the captain and uh, the Spanish government to kind of parallel the struggles that Ophelia has to go through. Um, And in the end, leaves an ending that is ambiguous to some but i have firmly decided how i choose to interpret the ending because i need it to be happy in order to continue to live my life <laughs> I, I was um. going to guess
2: you were going to pick the happy ending interpretation
1: <laughs> um i do believe so in the end um ophelia is uh trying to com- she fails at completing her third task uh is killed by the captain uh, and then her sacrifice, she dies in service of her newly born infant baby brother uh, and through the course of her sacrifice discovers that, oh, that was the actual test and now has proved her worth to come and join the fairy kingdom. Uh, I believe that Del Toro has explicitly said in interviews that that is the correct interpretation, that it is meant to be a literal um like it, a literal reading. It's supposed to be a happy ending. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, again, I need it to be happy in order to continue living my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, I agree. Yes. I, I went through and did my wiki research and found that, yes, he basically came out and said, it is a happy ending. We should be thrilled for her. There is an underground kingdom. I have scattered proof of that throughout the film that you just didn't notice. Um, but if you disagree with me, I guess, then that could be true for you.
2: I I just love that he's constructed a film where there is the ambiguity in the ending. Um, I I also think at the end, it's like, it's probably a happy ending, but I like that I can think the other way too.
1: Oh, for sure. Like there is absolutely a reading of this movie that is Ophelia has invented all of these uh, fairy tale and magical things, in order to escape from the horrible reality that is her current world, and that it and... is all taking place in her head, and that is a totally valid reading that depresses me <laughs> right. so
2: because it means at the end she just dies
1: that at the end that she just dies, and even that, I think um, she's still escaping a world that is pretty bleak and doesn't have a lot of hope yeah, for There's her. a
2: big difference between escape through death and escape to fairy kingdom through death. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so the reason that I wanted, the reason that I picked this movie is because this is the, the one that we have that is not kind of a direct, does not have a direct fairy tale analog. Like it is a, a, mo- it is a story that has been uh, invented by Del Toro but that utilizes a lot of the storytelling conventions and tropes that we recognize from fairy tales, um, which I think the the argument can be made that it is uh, you know if we if we decide that a fairy tale is not like a myth where we can continue to write and invent new ones, I think that this is clearly a new modern fairy tale that del toro has invented uh, using the trappings of traditional fairy tale stories
0: i agree um, it reminded me of a far more sophisticated version <laughs> of that assignment we had to complete in middle school that was like write your own fairy tale because um, yes it, was, <laughs> it has all of those conventions you know like there's the three tasks there's the hero that nobody you know expected um there's all those tropes of the fairy tale um and it's all woven together in a very sophisticated way that clearly i could never pull off um but it is something completely new and different at the same time Mm -hmm. like this whole idea of her having to
1: complete a journey in order to reclaim her birthright is very reminiscent of a lot of fairy. Ta- it's actually more reminiscent of a lot of fairy tale princes, I think than princesses, but yeah. that's because the sort of gender equality in fairy tales is a much more modern, uh, in invention, I think. Um, but yeah, having to, to go through this journey and complete these tasks, uh, the idea of, um, making the correct decisions making the correct choices being punished for the wrong ones um what i do think is kind of new and different in in pan's labyrinth is that her wrong choices are not irreversible in the same way that i think they can be in fairy tales like she screws up in task number two and uh eats the food which Never eat the food. Never eat like, the food.
0: That feels really like a hard time with that scene because I was like, I, I just can't watch. She's going to screw it up. It's going to be bad. She should know better. Doesn't she know she's in a fairy tale? Right? Yeah. That yeah. was
1: the one scene where I was like, Ophelia, you know better. <laughs> um. So even that, like she, she makes a bad choice. She eats the food and wakes up the pale man who is the kind of monster uh, or one of the monsters that she has to defeat in this story, and, you know, is told, like, oh, you've lost your chance forever. But she hasn't. She gets her chance to uh, sort of learn from her mistakes and continue on in her journey, uh, which I enjoyed. And even then,
2: it's not without consequence, because her fairies get eaten, uh, like, in front of her. Um so, I know. So it's like, it is a... It's a bad choice that she is able to come back from, but it's still not. It, it's still one that has lasting consequences.
1: Oh, and I, I don't mean that her choices are devoid of consequence, <laughs> right, right, just that totally. they're not... Yeah, just that making the, the wrong decision does not mean that...
0: It, that's like the end she, of the line.
1: That's the end of the story, yeah. right. She has a chance to learn from her mistakes and make better decisions uh, as the story continues on.
0: Well, and one could even argue that that's important to her being able to make the right choice at the end. Um, Mm -hmm. Because in the second task, she doesn't follow the fawn's directions. Um, It turns out poorly. In the third task, she doesn't just have this like whimsical moment where she's like, those grapes look tasty. Um, But instead, they're asking her to sacrifice her little brother. And she very purposefully... um, declines that task, knowing what the consequences will be
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: it's a it's a decision she makes
1: like she eats the grapes for selfish reasons, and she saves her brother for purely unselfish reasons and that turns out it, it looks on the surface to be the wrong decision because she's not doing what the fawn has asked her to, but it ends up being the correct one, which she may not have been able to make if she hadn't screwed up their first time lauren was this your first time watching it
0: of course because i'm so <laughs> far behind in all of pop culture um so i had i had never seen it before i confess i haven't seen much of del toro before either um i just kept waiting the entire time for it to turn out that the fawn was evil mm, yeah. Um, yeah which was not in fact the case because um, I thought I had a read on it. I was like, ha, ah, she's trusting the fawn and that's a bad idea. Um, but it turns out that she should have been more trusting um, in the first place, I guess. Um, but yes, yeah, so this is my first entry into Del Toro, and I, I really liked it um, because it has those layers of the real world on top of this um, mystical world at the same time. I'm a sucker for that every single time. <laughs>
2: Yeah, like, I, this is maybe in my top ten favorite movies, um, and what—the first time I, I watched it, I, I was blown away. I love the idea of, like, it's an adult fairy tale, not in the sense of, like, you know, graphic violence or whatever, although there is that, uh, but in the sense that it's, it's grappling with really adult themes, um, even though the main character is a child. Uh, which has a nice little like undercurrent too especially like growing up during the Spanish Civil War like a lot of people grew up kind of too quickly because of the horrible like you know situation that they were in um this is applicable to any sort of situation
1: that also feels like a very fairy tale yeah convention um you know the the idea of a child having to beat defeat the evil queen right um
0: Or that only the child can defeat the evil queen. Because adults are too terrible and jaded.
2: Right, yeah, children are pure.
0: Which is kind of a little bit like her mom,
1: I think. Who has married this horrible person for the stability that it would give her. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. No, like... But the idea... Like, yeah, the idea that Ophelia has the power to save to be saved from this environment, and her mom really doesn't because she's picked stability over i guess stability over more morality
2: not morality, but like the the quote naive belief that things can be changed,
1: yeah like instead of instead of wanting to instead of wanting to save the world like mercedes does her mother has decided to kind of accept it for the for the stability and safety that she thinks it will bring her and i don't want this to sound like i think her mother is a terrible person because i think part of the reason she does that is for the stability and safety that she thinks it will bring ophelia
0: mm-hmm.
1: as well um but it's clearly deciding that like oh this is how the world is so i'm going to make the best of it rather than trying to change rather than trying to change the world or defeat the evil in it
0: but i also really liked that she the mother is clearly conflicted about that choice Um, As you go through the film, there are these subtle little moments where she's like, I know, honey, this is terrible and awful, and I don't like it either. But those are things you can't say to your child um, because you've made a choice that you believe is best for your child. You just, it's a little like, I'll explain when you're older. Um, Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that I am speaking badly about the mother character because I do think that she is doing the best that she thinks that she can.
2: Well, and, you know, you mentioned Mercedes. The equation changes when you're also, like, worried about your kids. I think Mercedes has, like, what, just her brother? Um, Yes. So, like, she's able to make more, more, you know, bold oppositional choices because... You know, she's not taking care of of uh, a child or anything.
1: Although that changes a little as she gets to be more emotionally invested in Ophelia.
0: Mm -hmm. But that also compromises her ability to make very independent decisions. True. You know, she starts negotiating not just for her own safety, but for Ophelia's safety as well. Um, so you can argue that she's becoming more and more like the mother character because she has that emotional investment.
1: And then again, you also have at the end Ophelia, who makes a decision that looks a lot like that when she compromises her own uh, independence and choice ability to save her brother um, and is ultimately liberated by that same kind of constraint. So I don't think that I don't think Del Toro is making a morality judgment on the mother or Mercedes for making those choices. I don't think he's trying to indict either of those characters for doing what they think is the best thing to do, which right. I appreciated. Right. Okay, so the big the big question that I want us to talk about um is why have fairy tales so ingrain themselves in our pop culture. The extra credit that I assigned for people to watch or not was the pilot episode of Once Upon a Time. And mostly, I wanted to do that just to show that we are still cycling the same and familiar fairy tales uh, that we have been for decades. Like, they are taking... They look a little bit different now. Like, Snow White is allowed to be a more Robin Hood type avenger character or even uh you know the the hero that goes off to rescue the princess and they've been remixed and retold and repurposed but they're still there and i i was wondering what you guys thought of the kind of tenacity or fascination that these stories have with our pop culture like why do we think we have Held on to them for so long. Like, why do they have the staying power uh, in our current cultural landscape? Because I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon.
2: My my slightly flip answer, uh, which I I both I I believe is true, but also I I don't think fully encompasses this like the reason why, uh, is because in 1937, a little company called Disney put out a movie called Snow White. Uh, And from then on, it has, you know, Disney is the juggernaut that it is. It taps into fairy tales as a good, like, you know, easy well to draw from to tell stories. And then every single child in America has, you know, had an early exposure to these stories. Um, Again, I, I don't think that's the only reason, but I think that it is certainly a reason.
0: Well, I think your answer actually points to the deeper reason which is that it's a it's a well that they can tap from to tell easy accessible stories Mm -hmm. so clearly they've just tapped into something you're right um but there's there's something that underlies it that helps us to like turn it into this cultural disney phenomenon there are
1: there's one thing I would ask you to consider Pete about that answer. And that is the fact that there are, cause I don't disagree with you, but there are also Disney movies that have not stayed in our cultural consciousness the same way that the ones based on the kind of a uh, fairy tale or princess marketing scheme uh, have. So like, I think those of us who were young when Robin hood came out, remember it very well. But I also think that it's fair that that particular movie has not stayed. It has not become as iconic as some, uh, as like the little mermaid or snow white has. Um,
2: I, I, so I, I disagree, I, but that's only because we all watched it when we were young.
1: Well, uh, that's what I mean. Right, like right. we remember it and think about it all the time. Uh, but i don't maybe that one's a bad one because robin hood himself is also another one of those fairy tale characters that has uh
2: also that movie came out in 1973
1: okay
0: so, but like, when did so snow it still come has out?
2: like 37 <laughs> so like they they all have staying power just different degrees
1: um but i do think that there's something in particular about the way that the f- that fairy tales kind of I don't know. I don't want to give all the credit to Disney. Like,
2: no, and I, I'm not trying to, because <laughs> uh, because I, I agree with both of you that like there is definitely something about them, you know, like Lauren, you were saying that makes them a good thing for Disney to draw from, um, and that makes them, you know, very successful when that happens. But uh, on the flip side, I, I do want to point to the giant mouse in the room, which is that like Disney marketing has made it you know, something that we are saturated with from an early age.
1: Okay, so the other question that that kind of uh, begs is, so we have a lot of people who are using kind of the names and the trappings of fairy tales to tell wholly different stories mm-hmm. uh, in the, the way that Once Upon a Time does, which is maybe not the best example because it is an ABC show, which is owned by Disney. Um, But then you have something like the Fables comic, which does that also. um, So do we like, how much credit do we want to give Disney for keeping these characters in the cultural consciousness in order for them to be reused for other stories?
0: I don't want to give them a whole lot of credit, but that might just be me being stubborn. (laughs) 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 They, uh, they do have a marketing machine that no person can ever compete with Um, you know my sister has four little girls and she tried really hard for the first two to keep them away from the Disney princess culture um, and just gave up on the battle by the time the second two came around because it's invasive it's everywhere Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a reason why we all love it so much um, and I think that reason has a lot to do with um, it being a shorthand to teach people um, our, our cultural norms. You know, like, mm-hmm. vanity is bad. The evil queen is always, you know, looking for beauty and power. That's a bad thing. Um, the humility of our hero is always a good thing. Um, it's, it's a cultural shorthand that teaches us how we're supposed to behave. And, and
2: even going further than that, just the idea that selfishness is bad, selflessness is good. Um, you know, the heroes in all three of our stories are doing things not necessarily to benefit themselves. Like they might benefit as well. Um, in The Sleeper and the Spindle, the queen is going to save, uh, to wake the sleeper partly because, like, she needs to save her entire kingdom. She's worried that um, the sleeping sickness that's spreading will affect her kingdom as well. Um, And then on the flip side, the evil witch is spreading this sleeping sickness so she can have an army of sleepers to control the world with. So there's... Many fairy tales, I think, have that idea of, like, selfishness and selflessness, um, or even just greater good versus personal gain. Um, as as important, like, distinctions between your hero and your villain.
1: Although, interestingly, I don't know that the sleeper and the spindle is the best example of that, because I think, ultimately, the queen makes a pretty selfish decision at the end to go off on adventures rather than returning to rule her kingdom. That's true. Which sh- which the story implies, and this is never outright said, but the story implies has started to... F- has become like a an oppressive obligation for her so i do think that also one of the reasons she leaves to go save the other kingdom and wake the sleeper is because it's an adventure Mm -hmm. and not a duty or an obligation um but the reason that that's interesting and i think that sleeper in the spindle still qualifies as a pretty classic fairy tale is that i think that one of the ways that we have kind of widened what fairy tales can teach you is how to save yourself in addition to saving other people yeah, uh-huh. it's a, it's like this is almost an act of self-care for her to- <laughs>
0: But well, that's to actually consider- why I picked up this book in the first place. Um, at some point, somebody posted something somewhere. There's a Neil Gaiman quote that was um, illustrated with the art themes from The Sleeper and the Spindle. Um, and his quote was, I like stories where the princess saves herself. And so that... Me- piqued my interest and made me pick it up and then I fell in love with it. And it was actually my entry point into Neil Gaiman.
1: Oh interesting. Oh interesting.
0: Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I would say that, you know, the idea that you you save yourself as well as saving others in the fairy tale is a, a pretty contemporary invention. Um but it is. It's now in Disney, all over the place too. I mean, true. new, yeah. more modern, more you know, women friendly and less true love conquers all. Mo- Moana is um, a great retelling. example. What
2: Mo- Moana is like a great example there. Um,
0: yes, yeah. <laughs> I only just saw that a couple weeks ago, and I'm in love. Uh,
1: yes, I I saw it in the theater. I cried. A lot. I bought the soundtrack. I cried a lot to the music in the car. And then when I bought it on DVD, I thought maybe I can watch it and not cry because I've been listening to the music so often, not a true thing. <laughs> um, but I also just going, ba- uh, so end of tangent of um, going back to what I was saying. I think that that is maybe another piece of our original query, like why fairy tales have, um, stuck in our consciousness for so long and that's because they are actually malleable like they are still teaching values and teaching morals but they have proven themselves to be a malleable enough format that those morals and values can be changed to reflect what we consider to be valuable now like this idea of female autonomy and family love um not that sounds wrong but like you know putting putting the love of your family over a selfish uh selfish or ill-formed love um i'm thinking very specifically of frozen when the um love between the two sisters is what saves everything rather than any kind of romantic love um the this idea of like putting yourself before the need like putting yourself before the desires of others like these are all fairly modern uh, and contemporary values, but you can tell, you can use the same stories to get those across, just kind of altered in a little, little ways.
2: Mm-hmm. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but mentioning Frozen, like that's based on a Hans Christian Anderson fairy tale. He wrote those only, what, 120 years ago or so? So, you know, we we were talking earlier with Del Toro about the idea that I think, I think, like, you rejected Martha, I would reject it for sure, that we can't have new fairy tales. Um, I think that sort of, like, loses the history of fairy tale creation. Um, Because, like, the Grimm's were compiling for the most part. But while they were compiling older stories, other people were writing stories that now we consider equally canonical. Um, So I, I would say that there's no reason that we can't have new canon of fairy tales.
1: Oh for sure. Um and I think that by if if somebody were to say that you would also be advocating for the idea that culture is stagnant, which we know is not true. Right. Um but no, I guess I'm just specifically talking about the fact that like the same characters keep popping up like we
2: Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. Keep
1: use, yeah. We keep using Snow White. We keep using Beauty and the Beast. We keep using Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid, and yeah, all of these are very key Disney figureheads, but are are kind. Their stories are changing to reflect different and more modern conventions and sensibilities, which I think is great.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Any final thoughts?
2: I mean, <laughs> uh, at, at heart, I kind of like Jung's idea of, like, various archetypal things that just resonate with our consciousness. And I think that fairy tales hit a lot of those things. Going back to your idea of, like, why do they stick around? It's oh, like, yeah. You know.
1: For sure. I'm not familiar. I'm not that familiar with Jung. But that concept, I think, is very true. Yeah. Well,
0: and there's a, there's a new not really that new. Um Robert Bly is a man who writes a whole lot about fairy tales and and our you know consciousness as a as a people and he makes very similar but more nuanced arguments that there there are things that just resonate with us um and we can try to explain why they resonate with us um but across the board in all cultures and all representations not just in these kinds of fairy tales um but if you go Um, to like Eastern folklore, um, you get the similar kinds of um, values and and a cultural um, landscape that is very similar and has similar types of stories. Um, So I don't know that we're ever going to have a good answer of what it is that drives us um, to love fairy tales. But I do think they tap into something that We're never really going to be able to explain articulately. Um, It's just kind of a gut feeling.
1: Yeah, there is. I'm always fascinated by compilations of like, here are are a bunch of different versions of what is essentially the Cinderella story, just Mm. from like everywhere.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, so it it is fascinating to see similar stories popping up in disparate places because the same, as you said, Lauren, because the same ideas and values tend to resonate across uh, different cultures um, and kind of come out or get told in very similar ways.
2: And it's equally interesting to see the, 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 unique wrinkles that each one has. Uh, Russian fairy tales are a trip. They are very, in many ways, (laughs) different than, you know, our, like, German fairy tales.
1: All right, that is going to do it for our discussion today. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. It was fun.
1: Uh, You can find us... Yeah, find us. Uh, you can find Did You Do Your Homework online at our home on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at dydyhpodcast Podcast. Uh, we have a Facebook page that we watch intermittently uh, where we would love to hear your thoughts, uh, questions, or ideas for future shows. Uh, you can find me on the web at Magical Martha. I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Recently, I have been mostly tweeting about how much I love the teenagers of this country and how I support them and everything they choose to do. Uh, Pete, if we were to find you on the internet, where would we look?
2: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. Yeah, as always, politics and pop culture and also supporting the apotheosis of twitter which is teens dunking on politicians
1: it's so beautiful uh lauren would you like people to be able to find you on the inter- on the
0: internet actually no
1: i make it deliberately hard for
0: people to find me on the internet good on you
1: that is a that is probably a healthier life choice than what i have chosen to do um <laughs> You can, and I encourage you to uh, rate and review us on iTunes, or is it Apple Podcasts now? Oh, you know, I'm it, not sure. It might
2: be Apple Podcasts these days.
1: Okay, yeah, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Make us easier for you and your friends to find. Uh, listen to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, well, Apple Podcasts. We just talked about that. On Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. With a conversation on a, the Academy Awards, award winners in general, uh, what those say about our current pop culture climate, uh, we will see how mad or how many feelings I have about them once we find out who the winners are. I
2: can't wait until Three um, Billboards wins Best Picture, and we can just...
1: You shut your you shut <laughs> your mouth.
2: Well, <laughs> we'll have a great talk then.
1: Don't even joke about that. Um. But until then... Uh, So so your
2: homework is to watch the Oscars.
1: Yeah! Join me in my madness. (laughs) Uh, I watch the telecast every year. It is my Super Bowl. I'm excited. (laughs) Um, uh, So we hope that you enjoy it. I hope it's a good show. And uh, class dismissed.